Welcome back, everyone, to the Facts and Fury podcast. I am Bill Kuhn. I am your host. If you don't know, this is a podcast about politics. It is specifically about the modern Republican Party and how its leadership over the last you know, 40 years or so has really wreaked havoc on our democracy. If you've ever wondered how we ended up with a maniac like Trump in office or how we seem to be on the brink of civil war all the time, precipitated by crazy conspiracy theories, these are symptoms of a problem that's been brewing since the 1980s. As always, with my education background, I will incorporate learning techniques so that you can remember the information in this podcast better. Because ultimately, you know, we want access to facts when we're defending our positions. So whether whether you go volunteering or phone banking or just debating online until the early hours of the morning, you know, it's helpful that you have facts to support whatever the case may be. You want to have access to facts so that you can persuade whoever you're talking to of your argument, which is effectively that Republicans have been ruining democracy since uh, for the last several decades. So learning techniques include reviewing last week's episode, previewing this week's episode, and doing some free recall at the end of the episode so that you can remember the information you hear better and use it later on. So what did we talk about last episode? We talked about three things. One, the what and the why of the conservative war on government, how they enact their fiercely anti-government agenda, which is, by the way, quite unpopular. They do it through trashing their employer, the government, at every chance they get and passing really unpopular legislation that benefits mostly the radical rich financial sponsors. And they are radical, by the way, because remember what Paul Weyrich, the founder of the Heritage Foundation, said about uh, seeking to overthrow this country or the, the old order of this country. They are radicals. So number two, uh, we discussed who are the primary culprits from the top down. So Ronald Reagan, Newt Gingrich, Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, they all engage in this brutal anti-government rhetoric all the way down to the town dog catcher, which parrots these sort of top echelon Republicans. And it's the rhetoric also from right-wing media and the radical rich about government being the problem that infiltrates our air and uh, brainwashes people, quite, quite frankly. And number three, we discussed how Republicans weren't always this way. You have to go back to before the 1960s with guys like Teddy Roosevelt, Nelson Rockefeller, George Romney, Mitt's father, but they were there and you could, you know, they, they all believed in government for good and democracy and times really have changed. Boy, have they changed. So what are we talking about on today's episode? We are talking about a guy named Barry Goldwater and the ideology that he spawned with his namesake, Goldwaterism. So I'll talk about who Barry Goldwater is, what Goldwater Goldwaterism is and why it came about. And I'll discuss, and he became wildly popular, this guy, in the 1960s and how he still has uh, lots of significance and impact and influence today in today's GOP. If you don't know who he is, you really should learn about him. He is one of the most influential figures in the party, and 
the tenants, and and so I will discuss that. Number two, I'll discuss the tenants of Goldwaterism and how when you take them to the extremes, uh, which he is is an extremist, they make for basically an ungovernable country. You know, it is not possible to have our two parties coexist thanks to these extremists and radicals. And I'll talk about a third thing, which is how Goldwater played to the worst instincts of his base through unabashed racism. You know, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, there were a lot of scared white people irrationally wondering if they should fear these newly emancipated, you know, black people who got the right to vote and the right to sit at a, you know, coffee shop with everyone else. And so Goldwater basically riled them up like a coach in a high school football game. And we are still living with this, with his legacy today. So that's what the the episode is about. I'd like to begin the episode with a quote that epitomizes everything about Goldwaterism and can be distilled into an all-encompassing phrase that no matter how radical the idea, it was trotted out as a defense for it. And he said, quote, in 1964, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. Let me repeat that. Extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. Now, you may think, oh, that's just, you know, sort of aspirational. Lots of leaders speak in those sort of uh, ways, uh, vague aspirational ways. But really, anything that gets defined as liberty, and as we know, it's trotted out over and over again by by right-wing media as, you know, don't infringe on my liberty, my freedom, anything that is sort of an infringement on liberty. Goldwater is basically giving license to the idea that you can defend it to, at all costs and go to the extremes, meaning it is no vice. It, it, it is no negative thing that you can go to the absolute extremes to defend what you consider to be you know, an infringement on your liberty. And as, you know, we've learned recently between the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers, you know, this can lead to really just deadly and fatal scenarios. So what is Goldwater and who is he? So in 1964, which is the year that Goldwater uh, ran for president, he was a 55-year-old Republican senator from Arizona, and he just burst onto the scene. I mean, he he was like the Kool-Aid jug running through your living room. He somehow managed to beat Nelson Rockefeller in the presidential primaries, who was the last, one of the last leading sane Republicans in the party. But then he ended up losing to Lyndon Johnson. I mean, he got his ass handed to him in that election. It wasn't close. But what Goldwater did was he took every white conservative with a crew cut and a white picket fence by hailstorm. They started fawning over him. I mean, you should see some of the footage of that time. And it wasn't so much his personality as was the case with Trump. Goldwater was sort of this staid and boring figure. But his platform, his platform of anti-tax, anti-government, anti-anything that smacked of you know socialism was music to their ears. As you will see, socialism, the criticism, has withstood the test of time. They still trotted out to this very day when defending, you know, quote unquote, government overreach and, and protecting the poor. Goldwater happened to be the heir of a department store fortune, right? So anti-tax and anti-government and, and calling everything socialism was perfectly fine for a rich white guy with lots of money coming to him. But where Goldwater really benefited enormously 
uh, was the backlash against civil rights, as I as I mentioned before. There were lots of angry white people. They were angry at the idea that black people could now be educated in the same schools, eat at the same restaurants, ride the buses in whichever seat that they liked, you know, and soon have equal voting rights. Barry was this this voice for anti-civil rights. In his famous book, 1960, called The Conscience of, the Con- of a Conservative, which inspired millions of conservatives, he quoted at the beginning of the book that quote that I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the episode, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. And so the white people who were afraid saw civil rights as a infringement on their liberty and their freedom. And so they went to extremes to defend it. And in conservatives, they found their hero. They found their philosopher king in Barry Goldwater. And even today, you'll still hear people that call themselves Goldwater conservatives. And even though he lost the election, and boy, like I said, he got his ass beat. His words and ideas, they, they started nothing short of a revolution in the Republican Party. It became Barry's world and everyone else was just living in it. It particularly caught on with the GOP's elected representatives, who ever since have been pursuing the extremes of his radical agenda. Now, Goldwater was anti-government, and this quote is a perfect personification of the, his views on government and the views that he inspired in millions of people. He said, quote, I have little interest in streamlining government or making it more efficient, for I mean to reduce its size. I do not undertake to promote welfare, for I propose to extend freedom— my aim is not to pass laws, but to repeal them. Now, think about that, right? I mean, he's not even saying, I want to improve government. I want to make it more functional. He's saying, I just want to get it out of the way. I want to reduce it. I want to, I want to regardless of how many people it helps or uh, protection for the poor and the middle class, I just want to get it out of the way because it hurts my quote-unquote freedom. Of course, he's pissed off that the government's going to take some of his inheritance money or make a rule that says you can't fire employees at will forced to him you know government is a is a nuisance and affects your you know liberty and freedom but you know for 70 80 percent of americans government is a good thing so he is an icon amongst uh rich white conservatives and so that leads me to why why barry uh why did he become so popular and get elevated to stardom by the party. Well, he was a perfect vessel for conservative extremism. His temperament, the rhetoric, his look, his book, The Conscience of a Conservative, justified all the ways that conservatives could, could get away with shrinking government down to, the, down to the size of a bathtub. Sorry, down to the size where you can drown it in a bathtub as Grover Norquist by the way, if you don't know who Grover Norquist is or what he looks like, look him up. He just, you know, but besides his fringe radical ideology, he has one of the most unlikable faces in politics or in just in the world, <laughs> probably. So between Goldwater and Norquist, uh, the radical conservatives in the Republican Party, they found their religion. They, you know, by by adhering to Goldwater's words, 
no amount of cutting social programs or dismantling civil rights law or private or privatizing every industry under the sun, nothing was too extreme for a gold war conservative, right? Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. After all, government, you know, government was the problem and government was evil. So no amount of no amount or size of it was acceptable. Bring it all down. Of course that benefited people who were rich and white, but you know, details, details. What can also be described as a streak of anarchy, you know, my way or burn it all down, played very well in the segregationist and radical rich circles. You may have read about the white backlash voter of the 1960s who was appalled and scared that black people finally had equal rights. What, you know, after 300 years, that voter, that white backlash voter finally had a candidate who would reverse desegregation, turn back the clock on civil rights, even though it was just a few moments old. One of my favorite columnists, E.J. Dion, writes about how the Goldwater campaign considerably transformed the party. Once upon a time, Republicans were a diverse party. They had liberals, they had moderate Republicans, but no longer. They became alienated, meaning the liberals and moderates, and eventually they became endangered. And while that was happening, the Southern realignment of the Confederate states began in earnest, meaning they all started to go Republican from from Democrat. The Goldwater campaign did more than create a powerful ideological legacy. It also transformed the modern Republican Party. Moderate and liberal Republicans were pushed out and alternative understandings of conservatism were rendered illegitimate, meaning alternative meaning sane and sensible. The GOP, you know, that was the party of the 1960s, looks nothing like it does today. Black people were 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 once strong supporters of the GOP. Eisenhower won about 40% of the non-white vote in 1956. Nixon won about a third in 1960. But then in 1964... Thanks to the civil rights passage by Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, which helped millions of poor people, it's been all Democrats. And you know what? Republicans were just fine with that. Uh, Dion writes again, the Goldwater campaign and the backlash against Johnson's support for civil rights are often cited as the twin engines of the white Southern defection from the Democratic Party. A quick tangent that I want to, to take you on is the transformation of the, of the GOP wasn't complete until late 80s or 90s. So what started with Goldwater finished with Ronald Reagan and Newt Gingrich. It's really fascinating to see the change in the party over the course of those decades. It's like if you watch it on a map, it's like watching a time lapse of red dots getting bigger in the South, eventually covering the entire Southern United States in Republican red. So Goldwater was the primary spark for for the Southern Republican Party alignment. Even though it started before his candidacy, he really sped it up. And even though he lost, he won a critical consolation prize, which was that people were now able to support bigotry openly and politically. Just like his, as his campaign predicted, Goldwater swept the Deep South, surprise, for the first time in history. Imagine that history. Georgia voted for a Republican. Alabama did too. Mississippi, South Carolina, the first time since Reconstruction did they vote Republican. Louisiana voted for Eisenhower, but then then they went with, with the Republican Party, even though they voted for George Wallace, who was the uh, who was way more racist than uh, than Goldwater in 1968. And these states effectively had 
an all-white electorate, given that blacks were still denied the right to vote. Goldwater won 54% of Georgia, he won 57% of Louisiana, he won 59% of South Carolina, uh, 70% of Alabama, and a whopping 87% of Mississippi. Jesus. Last but not least, regarding Goldwater, he was, well, he was a little crazy. He was off his rocker. Though he had to pretend he wasn't crazy during the campaigns, lest he alienate voters. If you read his later memoirs, it reveals a deep belief in the lunacy. His memoirs called With No Apologies uh, that he wrote in the 1970s, it was all about the globalist conspiracies, quote-unquote, pursuit of a new world order and impending quote-unquote, period of slavery, the Council on Foreign Relations, secret agenda for one rule, one world rule, and the Trilateral Commission's plan for seizing control of the political government of the United States. Truly batshit crazy, you know, but let it all hang out, Barry. We see you. I'd like to close on this episode about a word about a radical belief, about the radical belief in small government. You know, small enough to drown in a bathtub, so to speak. You have, I'm sure you have a libertarian in your life or met anyone who thinks, you know, government is tyranny or should be abolished. I mean, if you haven't, consider yourself lucky. But if you're listening to this podcast, I'm pretty sure that you have, and maybe a handful of people. They are relentless. They manage to, you know, cloak their these radical beliefs in something that sounds totally neutral and principled, you know, freedom and liberty. But let's be clear. The only people that benefit from this extreme radical ideology are the ones who already have a lot, right? The haves, including the capital, assets, or access to both. And by abolishing government or privatizing everything that, you know, it benefits the rich and hurts everyone else. Let, I, I, I know this may sound maybe esoteric to some people, but let's start with a simple economic example to, to illustrate. You know, you don't have to have taken an intro course in economics to understand this. Suppose that market participant X, company X, builds a factory to make widgets. They make big, beautiful, bold widgets, you know, like Trump would make. You know, but but of course they they wouldn't work as advertised, and he, they would stiff customers and vendors. But that's a different story. In the course of production, this factory is polluting. They're polluting the local rivers with terrible toxins, not noxious shit. You know, starts turning people in into in the village into narcissistic sociopaths like Trump. I'm just kidding, but the the point is is that there's pollution and. If there were no laws against polluting, then Company X would continue to continue to pollute without fear of reprisal from the government, right? I mean, they sell their widgets to a company in another state, so what do they care whether people are, that are you know suffering near the factory? They have no say in their P&L. So the only clear remedy is to make a law that curtails pollution, right? Either by penalizing Company X or incentivizing cleaner methods. But in order for society to be free and live according to the ideals of the founders, we have to have absolute freedom, yells some schmuck Patrick Henry wannabe. Speaking of which, 
I often get trolled on Twitter uh, by anonymous accounts with handles like pissed off Patrick Henry. Fucking idiots. But it sounds, you know, it, it sounds sort of genuine, right? Like a genuine principled argument. I, I want my freedom. Leave me alone. And then, you know, and when do we always hear it? We always hear it when the government is trying to pass some law that helps disadvantaged citizens. We heard it during Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954 when blacks wanted access to education like white people. We heard it during the Voting Rights Act of 1965 when black people wanted the right to vote. We heard it during Obamacare and the expansion of Medicaid when people needed health insurance. But, you know, rather than say, I don't want to help others less fortunate because that sounds cruel, freedom from tyranny sounds much more noble. And the same goes for taxes. If you are well off, you are against raising taxes on the rich. But, you know, you don't couch it as... I don't want to pay even though I make more. You say something like taxation is theft or liberty means low taxes. It sounds neutral, right? It sounds like a fair principled stance. Well, those sorts of pronouncements have the greatest appeal to someone who already has power and status. That's why libertarians are overwhelmingly white and well off. If you are sitting atop a hill looking down on the poor villagers from your comfortable abode, you would be against the building of affordable homes next to yours. And rather than complain about poor people moving in or getting special treatment, the leave me alone, you know, my freedom is paramount sounds much better. You know, there's so many more examples. We want to give poor communities more voting access. They say, we need to protect our democracy from voter fraud. We say... We need to ensure that there's enough school funding for poor and underserved community. They say, school choice is the true equalizer. We say, climate change is a serious threat. They say, but there's so many threats facing this country, why pick that one? Remember, whether dealing in market terms or terms of democracy, these powerful incumbents are always on the side of power. They want to... They, they, they can't stand to lose any of it. And, and another thing they do is they weaponize meritocracy uh, to justify their power and status because they're heavily incentivized to do so. If you ask a rich person how he or she got to where they are, they'll say something along the lines of cleverness and hard work, of course. In fact, history is filled with dominant groups justifying their dominance as quote-unquote natural and proper. It used to be the divine right of kings, and now it's free markets. Of course, there are differences, uh, and free markets are more you know, mer meritocratic than feudalism, but inheritance and being born into privilege is not uh, the free market argument that they think they're making. Furthermore, no one is actually a libertarian. It's really all a front. Whenever certain groups of people advocate for more rights, it's usually down with big government, right? Black lives matter. All lives matter. But when those privileged groups begin to lose their power and they begin to lose their status due to market conditions, then, then they suddenly become big government defenders, right? Take coal mining, for example. In the early 2000s, when coal was dominant, the coal lobby would throw around free market language in, in order to thwart any regulation or taxes, that limited their ability to operate, even though they pollute the fuck out of our country. Uh, fast forward to today when coal is losing ground, 
that language, well, that's changed. And it's been replaced with, think of the heartland, and we deserve our subsidies. Take even the recent fiasco over critical race theory. If people have absolute freedom, and there is a demand from students and parents to teach about the history of the United States from the perspective of black people, then let schools teach critical race theory. White libertarians love school choice, but when it comes to choosing topics to teach, I guess, well, it's a different ballgame. They perceive critical race theory as a threat to their freedoms, so they will try to make new laws outlawing it. You know, like big government would do. What happened to freedom from tyranny? These radical views that I just spoke about and explained leaped into the mainstream with Goldwater. He was the catalyst. And, and, the, and the fights against equal rights for black people began in earnest with him. These views have always existed in the United States. But in the 1960s, when the civil rights movement was going on, the floodgates opened but they became politically mainstream with Goldwater in the 1960s, particularly with the passage of the Civil Rights Act. All right, that was the end of the content of the podcast. What I'd like you to do now is pause it, take three or four minutes for active recall, which means try to remember as much as you can about what you just heard. It doesn't have to be in order, just as much detail about the content, including supporting examples as you can. By doing this, active recall, you are strengthening the connection to these facts so they will be easier to recall in the future with volunteering or phone banking or debating, what have you. Time yourself to three, three or four minutes. Don't give up. Even when you think you've topped out or are distracted, just power through. Okay, ready? Go. Okay, great. You can thank yourself for doing that. This podcast became that much more engaging for your mind, and you have better access to the information. Now I'll review what we discussed on the podcast. What we discussed was, uh, number one, who was Barry Goldwater? What is Goldwaterism and why did it come about? Barry was a wildly popular Republican figure in the 1960s who still has incredible influence in today's party. From the writing of his famous book, Conscience of a Conservative, his ideas sparked nothing short of a revolution in the party that we are still living with today. Number two, we discussed the tenets of Goldwaterism and how, taken to their extremes, they make for effectively an ungovernable country. It is not possible to have two parties coexist when you have one party saying how awful and terrible government is and how we need to shrink it to the size of a bathtub when we know that it helps so many people, poor and middle class, it protects the vulnerable, and among other functions, right? Like protecting the environment, defending this country, making sure that people have clean water, good health care, et cetera. I mean, there's so many different functions, right? After the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, which was a you know, an act of big government, effectively, there were a lot of scared white people irrationally wondering if they should fear these newly emancipated black, black people. And Goldwater just came in there and riled them up and said, we, this is a, this is a, an encroachment on our liberty. 
we need to push back civil rights um, and we need to you know, shrink government because they're responsible for giving black people equal rights. So down with government. And number three, we discussed libertarianism and how it appeals to rich white guys, those who effectively have the most in society. It, it takes procedurally neutral language like free markets and every man for himself, right? This principled sounding language by doing away with protections and taxes and regulation, you're effectively enhancing the power of the people who already have a lot in this country. So that's all. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Facts and Fury. Be sure to tune in for the next one next week. Be well, stay safe and healthy. And remember, get fired up about saving democracy because we're going to need it. All hands on deck.